2: Tired of the late night shows that do nothing but political jokes? Then check out Man of the People with Pat Tomasulo, a different kind of comedy show. Stream it to any device Saturday nights at 11 East, 10 Central at WGNTV.com slash live. You can also find Man of the People on YouTube at Man of the People TV. The holidays are coming. Oh, those holidays are coming. Why not give yourself the gift of Stitcher Premium? Get 50% off your first payment for a limited time when you go to StitcherPremium.com and use promo code FRIDAY50 with Stitcher Premium. You also get 21,000 hours of original content like Marvel's Wolverine and Issa Rae's Fruit, access to exclusive bonus episodes of your favorite podcasts like Freakonomics and Bitch Sesh, ad-free archives, hundreds of stand-up comedy albums. Just go to stitcherpremium.com, use promo code FRIDAY50, that's FRIDAY50, for 50% off your first payment. I come to you today from an apropos location, not the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, as per usual, but from Atlanta, Georgia. Now, why, Michael, why is Atlanta, Georgia, an apropos location for any episode of this podcast? I will explain momentarily. This is... Obscure, the podcast in which I read you the obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your admirer, honestly, your lover of literature, your lover of ears, Michael Ian Black, and I find myself overlooking Midtown Atlanta from the 11th floor of the Midtown Hyatt here, where I have been holed up for the last week shooting a movie that really has no relevance to this podcast, but it does uh, prove that I can get work now and again. One of the interesting things about Atlanta is that in some parallel universe, a familiar parallel universe, the Centers for Disease Control here in Atlanta, Georgia, starts fiddling with a virus. And that virus escapes the lab, makes its way into the human population here in Atlanta. And very quickly, every human gets infected with this virus. And when a person dies, that virus turns that person into a reanimated corpse, in a sense, a zombie. And of course I am describing the television program, The Walking Dead. This is where the show is set. And part the second of Jude the Obscure has largely been a ghost story. It has largely been about those who have come before us and walked the cobblestone streets of Christminster and how they left their imprints and how they left their legacies. And ghosts are one thing. But zombies are quite another. And Jude now has found himself in possession of a love for his cousin Sue Bridehead that quickly is threatening to become a kind of zombie love. A virus that has infected him and turned him, perhaps, into his own version of a reanimated corpse. Because he knows now, that he cannot, he knows for, with some certainty, as we ended chapter five, that Sue Bridehead has now come under the sway and spell of her mentor, Richard Phillotson, over there at the schoolhouse. He, Jude has seen his arm around Sue Bridehead as they departed the vicars. He does not yet know why. He has seen the trees weeping for him. He has turned back from that love, which he cannot share. And now that virus is eating away at him as we begin chapter six. Jude's old and embittered aunt. Oh, good. I like when we meet Drusilla. I mean, talk about a bitch. Jude's. (laughs) You know, I said it before. I'll say it again. Hardy seems to have a problem with women. It's the Madonna whore thing. You know, we met Arabella. We met his aunt. Those are the only two women really we've met before Sue. Sue is a saint. The other two, not so much. Jude's old and embittered aunt lay unwell at Mary Green. And on the following Sunday, he went to see her, a visit which was the result of a victorious struggle against his inclination to turn aside to the village of Lumsden and obtained a miserable interview with his cousin in which the word nearest his heart could not be spoken. And we know what that word is, right? It's this brains. Brains! And the sight which had tortured him could not be revealed. His aunt was now unable to leave her bed and a great part of Jude's short day was occupied in making arrangements for her comfort. The little bakery business had been sold to a neighbor, and with the proceeds of this and her savings, she was comfortably supplied with necessaries and more, a widow of the same village living with her and ministering to her wants. It was not till the time had nearly come for him to leave that he obtained a quiet talk with her, And his words tended insensibly towards his cousin. And remember, Aunt Drusilla had said, you leave that girl alone, Jude. You don't go near her. And Jude had had sworn up and down that he would not. And of course, he broke his promise. And he says, was Sue born here? She was. In this room. Wow. They were living here at that time. What made he ask that? Oh, I wanted to know. Now you've been seeing her, said the harsh old woman. And what did I tell you? Well that I was not to see her. Have you gossiped with her? Yes. Then don't keep it up. She was brought up by her father to hate her mother's family, and she'll look with no favor upon a working chap like you, a townish girl as she's become by now. I never cared much about her, a pert little thing. That's what she was too often with her tight, strained nerves. Many's the time I've smacked her for her impertinence. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Drusilla. Even as she lay dying, she is just one cold-hearted gangsta. Why, one day when she was walking into the pond with her shoes and stockings off and her petticoats pulled above her knees, or I, afore I could cry out for shame, she said, move on, auntie, this is no sight for modest eyes she was a little child then she was twelve if a day and of course in 1895 twelve is middle aged well of course but now she's older she's of a thoughtful quivering tender nature and as sensitive as Jude cried his aunt springing up in bed don't you be a fool about her no 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 of course not your marrying that woman Arabella was about as bad a thing as a man could possibly do for himself by trying hard but she's gone to the other side of the world and may never trouble you again and there'll be a worse thing if you tied and bound as you be should have a fancy for Sue if your cousin is civil to you take her civility for what it's worth anything more than a relation's good wishes, it is stark badness for ye to give her. If she's townish and wanton, it may bring ye to ruin. (laughs) She's saying she's a slut. (laughs) She's saying if she's wanton, she's basically saying, God, she's basically saying, look, Sue, she's gone all townish on you, and we know what she did when she was 12. She put her petticoats above her knees as she went into the stream, shoes and stockings off. As I lay dying, I'm telling you that this harlot is no good for you. She is a her. Nothing more to it. And we look, listeners, we know who Sue is. She's nothing of the sort. She's a lovely gal. I'll tell you who would have done very well in The Walking Dead in a zombie apocalypse. Drusilla. Drusilla would be out there slaying them zombies left and right. You know why? Because she's hard as nails. Sue would have been the first one to go followed quickly by Phillotson, And then Jude would probably survive for a little while, just so that he could be miserable, right? Jude would be a survivor who is doing everything that he possibly could to get killed because he's such a fool. But for, through, through hook and by crook, somehow he will survive and he will see everybody around him that he loves get eaten by these zombies. And then eventually they'll kill him too. So, if she's townish at want and it med bring ye to ruin, don't say anything against her aunt, don't please. A relief was afforded to him by the entry of the companion and nurse of his aunt, who must have been listening to the conversation, for she began a commentary on past years introducing Sue Bridehead as a character in her recollections. She described what an odd little maid Sue had been. When a pupil at the village school across the green opposite before her father went to London. And remember, Jude didn't come to live with the aunt until he was a little bit older. So if you're confused as to why Jude and Sue would not have known each other as children, this is why, because she went away before Jude showed up. She had been when a pupil at the village school across the green opposite before her father went to London. How, when the vicar arranged readings and recitations, she appeared on the platform, the smallest of them all, in her little white frock and shoes and pink sash, how she recited Excelsior, there was a sound of revelry by night, and... The raven, how during the delivery she would knit her little brows and glare round tragically and say to the empty air as if some real creature stood there, and now we're quoting the raven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore. I don't know what any of that means, but I will say this. We're talking about zombies, right? And what is the raven but a blackbird, a harbinger of death? And so perhaps Sue Brighthead herself is a harbinger of death, that tragic little doe-eyed wanton slut. Now, look, this is not me. I adore Sue Pridehead, But if we're to believe what Drusilla says, and for all of her crassness and bad temper, Drusilla has not often been wrong about these things. I mean, she has been indelicate, certainly, in her phrasings, and she has been brutish in her treatment of children. But I cannot, I cannot lay on this bed in the Midtown Hyatt in Atlanta, Georgia, and tell you that Drusilla has ever quite been wrong and now we have her friend coming in, ghastly, and 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 recalling the raven which Sue had recited. She would glare around tragically. Listen to the words again: "Ghastly, grim, an ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore. What is the nightly shore? What could it be but death? Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's." Plutonian. Sure, the name is surely death. That is what it is. And you know what Sue craves. Brains! And then the woman continues. She'd bring up that nasty carrion bird that clear, corroborated the sick woman reluctantly, as she stood there in her little sash and things that you could see in a most before your very eyes. You too, Jude, had the same trick as a child of seeming to see things in the air. So they both have active imagination. So Sue was a, was essentially a good performer, a good orator as she read The Raven. And she's saying that, and Jude, you have this too. And we knew that, we know this about Jude. He was able to sort of conjure the world from the air. And it was this conjuring that allowed him to imagine better things for himself. Not quite The Raven but something grander, an eagle, perhaps, soaring to great heights. But we know what happens to creatures that soar to two great heights, don't we? Jude would know. Having studied the Greek, their wings melt and they fall to the ground and die and become zombies and say brains. The neighbor told also of Sue's accomplishments in other kinds. She was not exactly a tomboy, you know, but she could do things that only boys do as a rule. I've seen her hit in and steer down the long slide on yonder pond with her little curls blowing, one of a file of twenty moving along against the sky like shapes painted on glass, and up the backslide without stopping. All boys except herself. And then they'd cheer her, and then she'd say, don't be saucy, boys, and suddenly run indoors. They'd try to coax her out again, but I wouldn't come. These retrospective visions of Sue only made Jude the more miserable that he was unable to woo her. And he left the cottage of his aunt that day with a heavy heart. He would fain have glanced into the school to see the room in which Sue's little figure had so glorified itself. But he checked his desire and went on it being sunday evening some villagers who had known him during his residence here were standing in a group in their best clothes jude was startled by a salute from one of them you've got there right enough then jude showed that he did not understand why to the seat of learning, the city of light you used to talk to us about it as a little boy is it all you expected of it ''Yes, more,'' cried Jude. ''Well, I was there once for an hour. I didn't see much in it for my part. Old crumbling buildings, half church, half almshouse, and not much going on at that.'' ''You are wrong, John. There is more going on than meets the eye of a man walking through the streets. It is a unique center of thought and religion, the intellectual and spiritual granary of this country.'' All that silence and absence of goings-on is the stillness of infinite motion, the sleep of the spinning top, to borrow the simile of a well-known writer. Oh, well, it may be all that or it may not. I was <laughs> like saying, yeah, whatever, dude. As I say, I didn't see nothing of it the hour or two I was there, so I went in and had a pot of beer and a penny loaf and a half worth of cheese and waited till it was time to come along home. "'You have ginned to college by this time, I suppose?' "'Ah, oh, no,' said Jude, "'I am almost as far off that as ever.' "'How so?' "'Jude slapped his pocket. "'Just what we thought. "'Such places be not for such as you, "'only for them with plenty of money.' "'There you are wrong,' said Jude, "'with some bitterness. "'They are for such ones.' Jude is afflicted with two zombie viruses. The first is his love for education, an education that always seems just out of reach, but it is tearing at him. We hear him speaking with bitterness. It is eating him alive. Two Second is his love for his cousin, Sue Bridehead, who is just out of reach, and it is eating him alive. And now you've got this saucy neighbor boy saying to him, well, Jude, I was there once. It wasn't so great. And I suppose, uh, you know, you being so smart and everything, you probably enrolled in, in, uh, in the college there. And Jude's like, no, I can't afford it. And then, and then the dude's like, well, yeah, yeah, not for us. And Jude is so impregnated with this virus this ardor that he has to achieve more, more for himself, whether it be in in ejubication or in matters of the heart. And he doesn't know what to do with this virus that is coursing through his blood. Now, fortunately for all of us, or at least fortunately for the people of Mary Green, the simple farming folk of Mary Green, Jude has not managed to infect them. They are a plain lot. They know who they are. They till the fields. They work the looms. They do not want in the same way that Jude wants. They do not see themselves ever lifting from obscurity. They are content with who they are and their way of life. This is the running theme of this podcast. And I suppose of this book, the desire of people to some people to create something new for themselves and the effects that it has on everybody else. Now, we can contrast that with the backdrop against which all of this is taking place. England is in the throes of the Industrial Revolution, as we have said, or I mean, the Industrial Revolution, I guess, is, is, is middle-aged now. We're, we're getting on. Um, and everything, all the dynamics of country life are changing a little bit. Things are being torn down, new things are being built up. Uh, The way of life that these people at Mary Green are content to have will soon be disappearing underneath their feet and they don't know it yet. They are in fact the walking dead, but they do not know it yet. They have been infected with a different kind of virus. It is the virus of modernization and they do not know it yet. Soon their livelihoods will be threatened. Soon their very way of life will be threatened. And the only way out for them will be what Jude is trying to do for himself, which is education. Trying to get yourself into better circumstances. And it will not be easy for them and a lot of them will die. And they will go, uh, they will go the way of the dinosaur. I don't mean that literally. There will always be a kind of uh, uh, underclass. There will always be working poor, but this kind of idyllic agrarian society that Hardy is painting for us. And by the way, I don't know that Hardy knows this yet as he's writing this book, but I think he's sensing it. They will all be The Walking Dead soon. They will all be slaves to Negan. Uh, If you watch The Walking Dead, you know who Negan is. But if you don't, he's Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher is just around the corner, right? And soon they'll all be working for Margaret Thatcher. Speaking of work, am I right? Let's pay some bills, guys.
0: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
0: Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Conan is coming to Earwolf with his new podcast, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. On the show, Conan hangs out with some of his favorite people. Uh, His first guest, Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell's everybody's favorite person. Upcoming guests, Wanda Sykes, Nick Offerman, Kristen Bell. There's a new mailbag segment where Conan answers random call-in questions from fans about things like, as you would ask Conan, his hair and Star Wars. If you like Conan O'Brien and I'm loathe to think of people who don't like Conan O'Brien, although it appears to me that Conan O'Brien doesn't like me because I've never been invited on the show in all the 20 something years that he's been doing it. I'm not bitter. I'm just stating a fact. In the first episode with Will Ferrell, they talk about the last time Conan was on stage with Ron Burgundy, how Twitter makes them feel, and that one Lifetime movie Will made with Kristen Wiig. You remember that they made like a like legit lifetime movie except it wasn't legit because it was them but it was check out the first episode of conan o'brien needs a friend with will ferrell in your favorite podcast app and subscribe so you don't miss an episode conan o'brien needs a friend hi we're back we're reading here's what just happened This guy said to Jude, yeah, you're never going to go to college. Smart guy. And Jude just said, wrong. They are for such ones. Still, the remark was sufficient to withdraw Jude's attention from the imaginative world he had lately inhabited, in which an abstract figure, more or less himself, was steeping his mind in a sublimation of the arts and sciences, and making his calling and election sure to a seat in the paradise of the learned. He was set regarding his prospects in a cold northern light. He had lately felt that he could not quite satisfy himself in his Greek, in the Greek of the dramatists particularly. So fatigued was he sometimes after his day's work that he could not maintain the critical attention necessary for thorough application. He felt that he wanted a coach, a friend at his elbow to tell him in a moment what sometimes would occupy him a weary month in extracting from unanticipative, clumsy books. So he wants college. He can't afford it. So he's he's saying, you know, maybe I just need like a tutor. Can I afford a tutor? It was decidedly necessary to consider facts a little more closely than he had done of late. What was the good, after all, of using up his spare hours in a vague labor called private study without giving an outlook on practicabilities? I ought to have thought of this before. He said as he journeyed back. <laughs> yeah, I ought to have thought of like, what's the point? <laughs> Yeah, maybe that is something you should have thought of. Like, yeah, like, why am I doing this? What is the point of all of this learning? What am I trying to achieve here? He says, it would have been better never to have embarked in the scheme at all than to do it without seeing clearly where I am going or what I am aiming at. This hovering Outside the walls of the colleges, as if expecting some arm to be stretched out from them to lift me inside, won't do. I must get special information. Well, we're, 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 this is a very curious thing, I think, for Jude to, like, like, what, what's happening right now? Because... Jude has gone to Christminster. He has fallen in love with his cousin. He's gone back to Mary Green. He's talked to his dying aunt. He's asked about her. And now his head is getting spun around again from his cousin back to the purpose of education. And I feel like Hardy is losing the thread a little bit here because we were on two parallel tracks and we're kind of bouncing from one to the other. Uh, and it seemed to me that Jude had considered this before. When he was a child, he had considered what he might do with education and he thought he might be become a minister of some sort. He might rise to the level of whatever's above minister. I don't know. Parson, vicar, minister, bishop, cardinal, pope. I don't know what he wants to be. But it seemed like he had his vision laid out for himself. And now with Sue kind of out of the picture, realistically, for himself, even though he doesn't seem to acknowledge that yet. Maybe education is the only thing he has to seize onto, and that has always been the case. He got waylaid with Arabella, now he's getting waylaid with Sue, but still, this pursuit, this infection, this virus of education has seized his heart and will not let it go. But it seems like Hardy is kind of losing the thread, and he's not quite sure what to do with Jude, and he's kind of retreading old territory here. The infection is already there. It doesn't do us any good to say, well, what good is the infection? It doesn't matter. The infection is there. Jude needs education. Jude needs to satisfy his curiosity of all things. And for him to now go, well, what's the point in a kind of existential whale? Well, what good is that? It doesn't move the book forward. We know he's going to continue. We know he's going to keep doing this. So shut up, Tom. Get on with the story. Now get on with the story. Yes, I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed. I'm finding myself annoyed with Jude the Obscure now. The next week, accordingly, he sought it, meaning special information. What at first seemed an opportunity occurred one afternoon when he saw an elderly gentleman who had been pointed out as the head of a particular college walking in the public path of a park-like enclosure near the spot at which Jude chanced to be sitting. The gentleman came nearer, and Jude looked anxiously at his face. It seemed benign, considerate, yet rather reserved. On second thoughts, Jude felt that he could not go up and address him, but he was sufficiently influenced by the incident to think what a wise thing it would be for him to state his difficulties by letter to some of the best and most judicious of those old masters and obtain their advice. He could have skipped this entire paragraph. He could have just said, I need to get special information. So I thought I'd write a letter to the heads of the colleges. I I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I'm annoyed. I don't know. Maybe Maybe it's being away from home in Atlanta, Georgia, where I know there's a virus waiting to break out. Maybe it's the fact that I'm away from my family and I'm sad and lonely. I don't know what the problem is. But Jude is not giving salve to my troubles i don't i I don't have a lot of troubles but i just i want to escape and here's what i've been doing if you hadn't if you hadn't figured this out i've been binging the walking dead because it seemed appropriate and i have nobody to talk to uh when i'm not at work and so that's what i've been doing and it's been great and it's been a lot more entertaining than thomas fucking hardy i'll tell you that All right, let's take another break, shall we? We're back on Obscure, and we are in Chapter 6. During the next week or two, he accordingly placed himself in such positions about the city as would afford him glimpses of several of the most distinguished among the provosts, wardens, and other heads of houses. And from those, he ultimately selected five whose physiognomies seemed to say to him that they were appreciative and far-seeing men. So he's looking at these dudes and he's going, yeah, he looks cool. He looks cool. He doesn't look cool. He looks cool. Jude is a psychopath. And maybe that's what you get when you're like me, because Jude and me right now, we're simpatico, right? We're both in cities far from home. We're both lonely. We're both wandering around the city city streets looking for something. In my case, it's wood-fired pizza, and there's a very good place right around the corner. In Jude's place, it's education. To these five, he addressed letters, briefly stating his difficulties and asking their opinion on his stranded situation. When the letters were posted, Jude mentally began to criticize them. He wished they had not been sent. It is just one of those intrusive, vulgar, pushing applications which are so common in these days, he thought. Why couldn't I know better than address utter strangers in such a way? I may be an imposter, an idle scamp, a man with a bad character for all that they know to the contrary. Perhaps that's what I am. I go on Instagram, and sometimes when I'm on Instagram, uh, unlike on Twitter, you you can message me on Instagram, and I'm not going to encourage you to do this, because inevitably what happens is I see these messages to people who are just like Jude. like asking for shit that I can't provide or being like, hey, I know that you don't know me or anything, but would you call my sister and wish her a happy birthday? Fuck you, no. No, I won't. Because it's such a like entitled request. Like, yeah, I know you don't know me, but like my sister's a fan. Like, would you call her and wish her a happy birthday? Like, fuck you. I understand that it would be lovely of me to do that. And I have done things like that in the past, but it just seems so rude to me that you can just like out of the blue Walk into somebody's life and, and just be like, hey, will you just do this thing for me? Like, I understand kindness and civility, and I want all of that, and I want to give that. But at the same time, I, it annoys me. And maybe I'm just in a foul mood. I've been here a week, and, but I had the weekend off, and I drove up to the Cherokee Reservation in North Carolina. It's called Cherokee North Carolina. Uh, Carolina. And you might say, wow, that's very culture of. You know, there's a casino there and I wanted to play poker. Um, but on the way back, I stopped at a McDonald's because it was the only thing open. And I happened to like their salads. I like the Southwest grilled chicken salad at McDonald's. And I don't want to hear boo from you about it. And when I was there, uh, this girl came up to me Probably in her, her twenty two, twenty-three, probably around the age of Sue Bridehead. But unlike Sue Bridehead, this girl had fresh scabs on her face. And my initial instinct and I think correct instinct was, Oh, she's a meth head. And she came up to me and she said, I know I don't know you. Um and I thought she was gonna say, But I think you're funny. She didn't say that. She said, But can I have five or ten dollars to get home? I'm like and I said, I'm sorry. Because I was so annoyed in that moment. Like, what, like, it wouldn't have cost me anything to give her 5 or $10. I mean, it would have cost me 5 or $10. But I was so annoyed in that moment because she was lying to me, first of all. She didn't need to get home. She was in the middle of the woods in North Carolina. That 5 or $10, whatever it was, was not going to get her home. It wasn't going to get her anywhere. There's no Uber in that part of the world there's just meth and there's a girl looking to score some meth. And if she wants the meth, I don't give a shit. That's fine. That's on her. And if she wants to scab up her face because she's got the meth itches or whatever the hell they call it, that's fine too. But I kind of resented that she felt free to come up to me and ask me for what is a not inconsiderable amount of money, five or $10 so she can get home. And I said, I'm sorry. And I immediately felt terrible that I hadn't given her the money. I would have felt terrible if I had given her the money. Nothing in that situation was going to make it any better for me other than to buy a Big Mac value meal and stuff my face with it. But I didn't do that. I resisted and I resisted getting the ice cream cone for dessert because I adore McDonald's ice cream cones. But I sat there eating my fucking Southwest grilled chicken salad, feeling just awful about me that I had wasted my weekend playing poker at the Cherokee Reservation, that I was in the middle of North Carolina in the middle of the night driving back to Atlanta, that this meth head had come up to me, and we are all, in a sense, already just like that gal, just the walking dead, scrambling around from place to place, trying to eat the brains of every person we come across. That is perhaps an uncharitable way to look at the world, But that is what we are doing, eating each other's brains. And fucking Jude saying, oh, oh, can you help me, head of admission to college? We know he can help. And we know what you're really asking, Jude. You're asking for a free ride. So just say that. Just say, look, I'm a good student. I think I deserve a scholarship instead of beating around the bush. If she had just said, I'm a meth head, I still would have said I'm sorry, but at least it would have been honest. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have recorded today. I've been away from home too long. I've been wandering these Atlanta streets by myself, studying the fizzing on or whatever the hell, however the hell you say it, trying to get better. I'm going to end my reading today. I know it's been the most annoyed reading you've heard from me. I'm just in a mood. That's all. I'm just in a mood. And I really do want Jude to succeed. I really do want him to enter these colleges to satisfy that itch that he has. So until next time, dear listeners, thank you for indulging me. I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And you can talk to us at Black at gmail.com if you like what you've heard. Please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, why did you make it all the way to the credits? Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show. With music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black.